Well, let's give this pre-show a go and make sure things are good. Okay, let's, let's make sure things are good. Hi. Hello. It's How been, are things? Are things two good? weeks, right? Practically. Yeah, it was, it was last Friday. When yeah, it was yeah, we haven't talked since you've been to Seattle. So yeah. you told me in a very short message, I love this city. Mm-hmm. But I really don't have any... I mean, I, I saw that you... You went out almost every night and hung out with a couple of CBR people, but I really don't have any details about what exactly you love about Seattle. It's presumably more than a couple of good craft beer bars. It was okay, so it was like everything about that you went about like a Western city. The, the people were nicer, just sort of a more relaxed attitude. Um, it also had it wasn't in a desert like uh, like so like California. Uh, so you saw deciduous trees going down. A larger city. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weather was was great at the time. It was a little rainy, but it's Seattle. Uh, the people were great again. Uh, the options for things to do and, and stuff to see were great. Um, and yeah, it was just <laughs> I, I loved everything about the city. Cool. It's awesome, awesome. I, I I really want to go back there again. And of course, the the two listeners I met. Fantastic people and uh, really fun to talk to them. Fantastic. Yeah, Greg sent me a video from who was the listener? Uh, it was the f- for yeah, I know I'm, I'm bad oh. with names, so <laughs> <laughs> but it was well, you're looking up his name. Yeah. It was, it was Greg was like kind of showing off a little bit, you know, tongue in cheek showing off a little bit in the video, but you know, I was just. It made me happy to watch the video to see how excited this listener was. Yeah, the, both listeners were very, were really happy to, to, to uh, join me and and just and and were really expressing how much they uh, they love the show and and appreciate what we did. So it was great. Mm-hmm. So um, that second listener, that was uh, that was John. Uh, was, yeah, that was John. Uh, he and I met at uh, at Holy Mountain. Yeah, and before that, it was Toby at Rubens Brews. So yeah, the, the video I sent to you was was of, of John, but Toby and I met at Rubens Brews. Uh, both great places. Both had uh, great beers. I I kind of I think that there was an aesthetic to Holy Mountain that was even. I mean, Rubens Brews was great. Uh, there were like twenty beers on tap, a huge amount of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Right. But there was an aesthetic that was sort of uh, everything was kind of bare bones in terms of the chairs and stuff. Like the chairs and booths were just plywood that was turned into booths and stuff, but sanded down. Mm-hmm. But made somehow that that sort of do-it-yourself aesthetic actually elevated the place a bit. It was it was really cool, and the beers were fantastic. That's cool. Uh, both. I, all the places I went to had really fantastic beers, so very happy to see that. I also went around to some good restaurants that night uh, that I was alone, and I went to um, Raven. Uh, oh, the night you were sending me the, uh, yeah, Black Raven or yeah, Black Raven, right? Uh, I so, so the, the the second night I went out for sushi, I went to a place called uh, Shiro Sushi, which is like the, the big. Uh, a super sushi place, and uh, you know, I spent 150 bucks because I got omakase and said, "All right, give me what, you, show me what you got, <laughs> show me what you got." Uh, it was very good, but you know, I, I figure if you're gonna if you're gonna get you clear sushi, your credit card ahead of time, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, no, <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna get sushi, 
you should do it relatively rarely and then go and spend 150 bucks on it. I mean, don't get sushi every day. Get sushi once every three or four months. Go to an awesome place and mm-hmm. get omakase. Yeah, it was, it was like a, it was a vacation. Um, so after after I went to a Black Raven, I went to um, I went to an American restaurant, just sort of nearby, a little small uh, American restaurant, and had uh, some nice some nice meals there. Okay, some nice stuff. That's where I had the cider, and uh, mm-hmm. I had a, like um, it was a naki dish as a. I actually I took pictures even though I know it's lame to take pictures of your food, <laughs> but I didn't I didn't tweet most lame. of most of my food pictures. I did not tweet most of my food pictures, uh, but I took them. So there was the this was the naki dish which was nice, and then this is a uh, asabuko. I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed right now and I already saw two food pictures, so <laughs> they don't bother me. I'm fine with food pictures. I'll send them on occasion. I took pictures of all of all of my sushi. Uh, on my sushi courses, like this picture, boy, was that a good plate. That, that was four different types of tuna, uh-huh. all bluefin. This fish was named Fred. <laughs> he lived a long life in the Southern Pacific. Um, it was it was really, really good. Really good stuff. That's Seattle cool. was great. Seattle was awesome. The conference was eh. You said, you know, how many keynotes or lectures can you go to? Yeah, I mean, it was three days of this, and a lot of it was focused on pretty high-end SQL uh, 2012 and 2016 stuff. We're still running 2008 at work. So even if even if I learned some of the stuff, which I did, I mean, I learned some, mm-hmm. some of the things you can do in, in SQL, these things called uh, windowing functions, which we can do a little bit of, but we can't do nearly to the extent that they were doing. It's like even if I really pre- learned at it, I wouldn't be able to practice it. So, and I wouldn't be able to use it. So it wasn't really helpful. So one of those things where I went to sort of more of the um, intermediary stuff just to get a better idea of query, anal- query analysis and to figure mm-hmm. out what's going on in that level. But I think my next conference, if I could, uh, would not be an SQL conference. It would probably be uh, an Angular JS conference or something because that's what we're basing our new product on. Right. But cool. But but it was uh, it was fun to have that experience and run out to Seattle. That was awesome. Um, did I tell you I'm doing another one of those crafts and clouds things? It's a one day trip out to Austin and back. Ah, Austin. Yeah, only <laughs> I'm flying in Tuesday morning, flying out Wednesday morning. Mm. It's uh, a to be around the supercomputing conference. Uh, I'll be able to go to supercomputing for a day, so that'll be cool. See like crazy crazy uh you know type of performance computing and whatnot that they do it or that you know that the companies that exhibit and attend uh-huh. supercomputing will be so that'll be cool uh john rubio from the beerists you know the beerists are in austin so um i've let john know and might you know try to hook up that tuesday night after after my event after all my coworkers go back to the hotel because, I mean, if they weren't going to come out with me, you know, and explore San Francisco, I can't imagine they're going to want to explore Austin yeah. either. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sucks to be there. Like, I'm going to go down to uh, Tucson uh, the beginning, first week in December for the, uh, we have a retreat, company retreat every week, every year. But 
I'm only going to be there for, you know, flying down Thursday, coming back Saturday. It's not going to be. Right. So if you are listening and you are in Austin and you're curious, it's Tuesday the 17th. That'll be the night that uh, I would be available later. All right. So let's let's talk shit about stuff. I was just recently watching uh, Return of the Jedi. Okay. I was watching the, the, the Red Letter Media commentary, and they said some interesting things about it. And, and I sort of was watching a different way of watching the commentary. Uh, they point out something that, that's very interesting that I hadn't thought of, but it's, pro- it, it's almost certainly true. Uh, if you think about it, the Star Wars franchise had could have easily, easily gone the way of the Matrix franchise. Right? I mean, let's face it. The first one was a, was a fun movie. That's a good mm-hmm. movie, but it was you know it was a big chase scene. It wasn't you know super complicated. What made Star Wars was that second movie. The second movie is a great movie. It is a pinnacle example of the genre, mm-hmm. and sort of the whole respectability of Star Wars lies on, on the linchpin of that Star second Star. movie. Yeah, I think um, Return of the Jedi is it's not terrible. But it is kind of a clusterfuck in a lot of ways. The 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 first bit is great. The first thing where they're, I mean, you can, the Jabba, yeah, freeing. You, you can quibble all you want about the little about the logic of it, but I mean, it's a it's a nice little compact story. Everybody has something to do. Mm-hmm. It, it moves. It's it's fun. Uh, it's great. And then the movie just meanders for an hour in this forest nonsense, and this day and and the Dagobah nonsense, and brings back a whole other Death Star. <laughs> Like nothing new. That ever. worked the first time. Yeah. Let's do it again. At the end of the movie, stuff starts. Everything that isn't on the planet is is still compelling enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the space battle stuff is great. the The stuff between uh, the Emperor and, and Vader and Luke is is great. Uh, all the stuff with the with the teddy bears is dumb. But I mean, it, it, it's really clear. Like like in Empire, so I, I, did, I watch Empire afterwards. Uh, Empire, everybody has something to do. Everybody has a character arc. Mm-hmm. All all the stuff they're focused on, the movie moves, and the movie, uh, you know, it it, ma- it makes these set pieces. It, it explores this world that was created. And it doesn't it doesn't hold back on showing you sort of both the good parts and the bad parts of the world. And uh, so it really it re- does a great job of world building. It does a great job of sort of of, of giving these characters arcs and ev- giving everybody involved something to do. Why the hell is Lando in Return of the Jedi? What the, <laughs> what does he have to do in Return of the Jedi? Why why is Han there? Why, why, it, I mean, the Han and Leia are, are essentially this tangential part of, of the story that really doesn't doesn't do anything at all. There's a they have a technical aspect of they shut down a shield generator, right? But that could have easily been no names or some bombing run 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 by mm-hmm. you know Red Squadron or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I think Lando's roles. You know, once Han was frozen in carbonite and whatnot, he right. Well, that part, but you get Han out. Han should have been flying the Millennium Falcon. Falcon. Um. Yes. So you've watched him recently. I've seen him yeah. in the past year, but mm-hmm. you know, and not technically thinking about this part. But wasn't like Lando like, a, like 
you know, they gave him like pretty high rank. Right. right. So like maybe he was a great strategist or a great pilot or something and maybe it was a better role for him to fly. Well they gave him pretty pretty high rank after in Empire. He basically sold out Han and only came to his senses at the last minute. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, helped get Han back. Right. And suddenly now he's a general in <laughs> in the rebellion. But maybe his skill set is more, you know, uh, field you know, like a field leader, you know, in the space he's battle. He's a scoundrel like Khan. He's not. <laughs> but they both find honor at the end. I mean. Yeah, but it was never presented like he's, he's a amazing pilot. I think, you know, well, also once the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they didn't spend much time on it, but I think, you know, they, he just, I kind of see him as being far above average pilot. It could have been, but it was never. I I don't remember it being ever presented in any way that we uh, were like. Why would why why would we assume that Lando is also a good pilot? Mm-hmm. We know Han is. There was a lot of stuff going on yeah. in the second about you know yeah. how good a pilot Han is. Yeah, that's a good point. But he wouldn't have been able to spend you know time with Leia under the campfire. Right. Which and but all the Leia stuff was. Done. I mean, Empire solidified their relationship, mm-hmm. and then that was it. It was done, and there wasn't really anything to explore. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It's not perfect. Yeah. Um, and still, I mean, other than like even the Ewoks don't bug me so bad until. They go on the offensive with the gliders, and like I think I'm yeah. I'm fine until the glider. Yeah, well, it, I, th- I mean the the logs that smash, you know, the logs that come down and slam together and smash things, and the tripping and all that. I'm good with that. It's the fucking glider. <laughs> when he gets when he takes off the little that's 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 the start. That's the first thing. No, no, no. Well, when he has like the hang glider, like the leather and stick hang oh, glider. Oh, that's that's when I lose no, it. I'm you know. To me, what what bugs me about it is this is an imperial garrison on a planet that instead of just incinerating these little teddy bears, they're <laughs> they're like fighting him hand to hand and stuff like that. It's bullshit. Yeah. But the empire, you know, where in in what scene have stormtroopers ever been all that competent? Maybe when they're taking the base on Hoth. Right. Um, they're not competent on the Death Star hardly at all. I know it, it, their competency varies, I suppose. But I mean, usually they're it's a bunch of shenanigans, you know. They're you can the straw man. I mean, you can just yeah. take them out at will. But the whole point of the Emperor's plan was that there was an entire garrison waiting for them to attack the shield generator because they knew they were going to attack the shield oh, generator. right. So, you know, the Emperor was like, yeah, you thought there was going to be a little, you know, minimal team down there. There's an entire Imperial garrison waiting for you. And I'm sorry, your little Muppets aren't going to help you out this time. That was the whole plan. The entire mm-hmm. plan was, uh, I'm going to trap you and you're going to fall for it. And they did. And yet they didn't... Well, I mean, you could argue that everything took a turn once the Emperor died. 
that he was sort of influencing things. Right. And as soon I as mean, he died, shit got real. I mean, okay, so can play devil's advocate and, you know, imagine a bigger battle than is shown on the screen because it was still a pretty small budget then, right? Mm-hmm. Not CGI. But imagine the Ewoks in overwhelming force, you know, like tens of thousands, you know, just like completely overtaking. Okay, but you don't do that after one night where you where C-3PO no. <laughs> pretends to be a god. Yeah. You don't get tens of thousands or millions of Ewoks. You know, I could yeah. see, sure, an entire planet full of these teddy bears could maybe overwhelm. Yeah. But you had basically... I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate. And yes, yeah. the, the, the tribe, the camp was, you know, several hundred Ewoks, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you probably only saw 30 or 40, but yeah. you can imagine that the camp was several hundred Ewoks. Um, no. Yet, 20,000 Ewoks, mm-hmm. you know, diluting the attack, you know, some are attacking the transport station, some are attacking the shield generator, you know, you could... And... If they kind of alluded to a wider battle and didn't show most of it, you know, that would have been fine. But the idea of the Emperor had one shield generator instead of a whole bunch of them. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of dumb things in the in the movie. And just going back to the Death Star is a point where it's like you can tell Lucas is already out of ideas. Well the twist was it's functional and it doesn't look like it's done. But that's not... I mean, it's still just another Death Star. And, I mean... It, <laughs> there, there is... There is a part of it that, that is fun, which is just... It's it's the Emperor when he he announces that it's fully operational and then he just uses it to blow up, like, a, a tiny ship or something. He's, he's just having fun with his toys. <laughs> that's all he's doing. He's like, eh, blow up a couple ships. <laughs> yeah, it really wasn't in a very strategic location mm-hmm. to be fully functional. Mm-hmm. You know, it should have been around... You know, uh, one of the most rebel-supporting Outer Rim planets or something. So it could do what it did to Alderaan, you know? Right. Uh, or or it should have been, I mean... But the only planet it was nearby... Well, I guess it was near Endor. And this was one of Endor's moons, so they could have blown up Endor. But then the moons would have been SOL. And then, you know, the shield generator would have been SOL, so... Uh, I, I don't... <laughs> It, it it's a it's a pretty dumb movie. It has its moments though, uh, but Empire was... and it's still better than all three of the prequels. Yes, yeah, because it has its moments where the prequels really mm-hmm. don't. I mean, the prequels are extraordinarily sporadic in in what you might call moments, and even those are iffy. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Empire is the linchpin to the entire series. Because again, I mean, you just had Star Wars. It'd be a fun movie, but it would not mm-hmm. be. Right. You wouldn't have a cult of, of stuff around it. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, my favorite part of the movie is the battle on Hoth. I just, you know, saw that at a young enough age that, it, and it was like, they didn't have any, I guess the space battle, I don't know, for, for me, the terrestrial battle with all that gear on Hoth was more impressive than the the battle of the first Death Star. Hmm. So I really thought, you know, that that bottle, battle to overrode on the rebel base was really cool. It was definitely a cool environment. Okay, so I, I 
I actually talked to to I believe it was I believe it it was John about this in Seattle because we actually um, talked a little about research papers and and I had I had a billion dollar idea. I'm going to tell you everybody it is because it, as a billion dollar idea, it would mean somebody would need to invest millions of dollars to get it to work. Which I well, you know, I have a million dollar idea too. Put it up on the uh, public domain, huh? But this idea is all right. So, whenever you are a large organization or you're or the government or something, and you're trying to do uh, some sort of research, um, for whatever for whatever it is, you're always going to be. Either, either as a researcher or as a, or as the person commissioning the research, you're going to be accused of bias. Even if you do all your homework and do everything, I mean, there's always that accountability of, of bias. So, what about an organization that acts as a research escrow organization? They keep everything double blind. One party goes in and says, "I need research on this stuff." Okay. The escrow organization then finds a research place capable of doing it, does not say who is doing it or for what purpose they are studying it, okay. and gives you know, and and then he doesn't allow the two sides to communicate. So the people who are doing the research don't know what they're researching or why they're researching it, and right. the people. So you actually have a double blind at that point. You have a double blind in your actual people. Who can are, the people do the research and not know what they're researching? Or? Well, I mean, you can tell. I mean, they can know what they can know what they're researching, but they but they don't know. You you remove the the point where we have to please our client. You're you know if you're researching something for Exxon, you yeah. may you may be more inclined to make your findings palatable to Exxon. But if you don't know whether it's Exxon or Greenpeace, uh, or Greenpeace right, <clears throat> then you don't know who to make it palatable for. So you simply research and find out what you do. Now, you, you can't, you, you try to keep it hopefully as blind as possible. Right. But at least now, the question is why would, okay, in the example of an oil company, why would the oil company want to use this research escrow organization? Well, because it would give legitimacy to research that they, uh, that they found. Do they want legitimacy, or do they just want a press release and a soundbite? I'm sure that there's... Well, here's the thing. If you have the research and it goes against what you believe, then you don't... Then, you you know, Mm -hmm. then you don't mention it. If you find research that does, you know, that does put into question some things, then you can not only mention it, but also say, hey, we went about this in an entirely transparent way. We did not know who the people who were researching did not know what they were, you know, who they were researching for. We did not know who right. we were giving it no, to research. I mean, that gets rid of one part of bias, but I thought you had, I think you're, and I, it, I think it does have serve a public good. Mm-hmm. The, the other bias, and this is the part I was trying to figure out how the people will do the research, right? Because a researcher is going to make a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And that hypothesis is, could easily have bias of the researcher in it, right? Will it not? Need well, the hypothesis is going to have bias. The hypothesis yeah. is going to be this is what I expect. But the point is, then you collect data and then you don't come to a conclusion until you. I mean, ideally, right, this is you know I'm talking about a, a 
platonic ideal of, right. of 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 the scientific method, which is not necessarily how it always works. But the idea is, you double blind yourself from the results. You have an hypothesis, you get the results, you finally then right. take the results and you see whether that supports your hypothesis or not. And then you do a research paper saying, "This is my hypothesis. This is what I measured." Hypothesis doesn't match up with the, with the results, or it does. Oh, sure. So the sponsor can have a hypothesis, but then the researcher is going to. You can't really do the research without having an hypothesis, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, but you're saying, like, does this have an impact on this is, is the question you're asking. And, right. And, but, I mean, there's still a big problem today with bias in, like, the research that goes to publication, you know. Lots of stuff is false, falsified, biased, you know, all that stuff. You know, people are publishing bad papers. You know, there's yes. been a bunch of news on that lately. Sure, sure. And... And I can see what, you know, part your idea solves for the commercial sponsorship of... And government sponsorship. Of of science. Uh, But, you know, maybe we need to try to expand this to to make all the research better. Well, I mean, you're not going to make humans perfect. Yeah. There's always going to be biases and and, uh, things that we try to control for. The idea is that also the the escrow or just research escrow organization is going to try to find you know and, and use researchers who have track records and who um and who generally have track records of doing good research right that that's part of the mm-hmm. that's part of the benefit of it is, is that you're you're not only selling this to corporations and one and other places that want unbiased research you're also selling it to the researchers saying i can get you money to do research okay I, I honestly think this is a this could be a huge thing, but it would take millions of dollars to set up and, and start get those relationships going. So I, I don't have any expectation of it being. Uh, get some venture funding, man. <laughs> I actually do have a million dollar idea that could conceivably be uh, be done by me. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Get on that then. Uh, I'll talk to you about it offline. How about that? Okay. And then I'll talk about it to all of you. I'll start recording after Greg leaves tonight. Apparently the Bond movie is terrible. I didn't even know there was one. Spectre. Which I find um, uh, unsurprising. I mean, Bond has always been sort of a cheeseball thing. Why? We've only recently sort of expected it to not be cheeseball. Uh, I I can't comment. I don't like James Bond. A bunch of years ago when I got Netflix, I'm like, oh, I can watch James Bond. You know, not downloaded, but ordered up a couple James Bond DVDs. I'm like, this sucks. It's one long, boring chasing and boring, boring. I'm like, ugh. And then I have never had any will to watch any more James Bond. Yeah. It's probably To Die Another Day or something like that. It was probably the one I watched. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty cheeseball stuff. It, it's it's old, sort of Cold War-ish spycraft thing. It's not even really interesting spycraft. It's, it's flashy. You know, the Bourne movies did it so much better anyway. So, yeah, why bother? Oh, I wanted to show you something. So, remember how how we talked about uh, the 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 pot going on in Denver, which uh-huh. was right. crazy everywhere, everywhere. 
stuff was going on in Seattle was different. There were a couple things that were different. First of all, um, <clears throat> it it wasn't obvious, at least, that, that it was every like couple blocks. If it was every couple blocks, it wasn't nearly as happy as it was. Right. Uh, there was also different terms of uh, of of the shops. You couldn't have signage on the shops. The shops themselves had to have like frosted windows and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you could have like billboards up that would say, "Oh, there's a shop right here," but you couldn't have <laughs> couldn't uh, have a sign on. You the couldn't shop. have a sign on the shop. Um, and the shops were a little bit different in, in terms of. I just went to a couple to see what was going on. Uh, they they allowed credit cards, which was interesting. Uh, and they, uh, it was, it was sort of a less restrictive environment. You didn't have to do, uh, one person at a time and that kind of thing. Right. But here's the thing that I thought was great. Cause I, I, I was able to, to bring home something. (laughs) Uh, this is, uh, this is a little thing that just goes on top of a, of a vape pen. Okay. Uh, the, Strain in here is Pineapple Express, and that's sort of a okay. You know, you may have heard of it. There was a movie based sure, on it. Sure. Right? Uh, the interesting thing about it, so Pineapple Express also is supposed to have like you know pineapple-y taste and, and stuff like that's part of where it gets its name from. What is interesting to me, the most interesting thing about this is this is not just Pineapple Express. This is pumpkin spice flavored Pineapple <laughs> Express. Of course. <laughs> It was probably the first thing they made other than pot vape was pumpkin spice pot vape. Probably. Uh, but, yeah. Why'd you buy it? Because I wanted to show you that I can get pumpkin spice. Pineapple Express. Okay. There it is. And here, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Here we go. We are in Colorado for the next fifteen seconds. This is perfectly legal. Yeah, this is this is being broadcast from Colorado. Okay. I was arguing. I wasn't really arguing because my sister uh, did not really argue with me about it because she she sort of. Oh, here's a question for you: the the vape stuff. Yeah. Do they put like the propylene glycol and stuff in there so it has the smoky look, or is it like actually better for you than like? The mainstream vape stuff. I have no idea. I mean, does it give you that white, like... It can, yeah. Can it? Yeah. Like, if I were to just... No, you don't have to. (laughs) You see some of the... Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't see any that time. But I was just curious, because, like, like vape stuff, like, they... Okay. They use... Propylene glycol, I think. Yeah. Doesn't sound like the best thing to be, you know, antifreeze. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> Sucking vapored antifreeze into your lungs, or uh, atomized, uh, atomized antifreeze into your lungs, but. Uh, okay. I've been behind trucks before, and I'm sure I've gotten worse stuff yeah. in my lungs. Okay. Then, then occasionally, you know, <laughs> sucking on that. Uh, we talked a little bit about Common Core. Uh, Ava's going through some interesting stuff at Common Core. I'm sure that. Uh, your kids are going to get mm-hmm. hit Common Core at some point. I don't know. If no, no. She always, yeah. Her math has has been all Common Core since she went in. Yeah. And uh, Heather was having an issue with it, and I think it's good. I think that, yeah. so. Like she's adding two numbers, like twenty nine and eighty seven. Mm-hmm. All right. So she actually adds the left column first, 
So she gets a 10. She writes a 10 up here. And then she takes the right column and she looks for 10s. So she borrows a 1 from the 7 to make a 10. So she'll like make that a 6. She'll make that a 10. She'll put Then she'll like scratch this out and put an 11 over here. And then, you know, 116. You know, that's how she, she does it. And um, the idea of making 10s to make the math easier to see, I like that. It, it seems like a lot of... Num- place number holding like right, here's yeah. a temporary number yeah, let's put this in a register let's put this in a register okay let's update that register you know it it, it seemed a little it's counterintuitive to what, the way we were taught well not, not just that i mean i think the idea is fine but like the order she went through it she figured this number out first where if she would have done this over here she could have added a top co- another column you know you know instead of, so instead of making a temporary number which she had to revise but you know, the, the she still could have made a 10. The important thing, though, is that what you're doing is procedure. What you're doing is, is a procedure to solve it. What she's doing is she's more thinking about the numbers themselves. That's the idea behind Common right. Core. She's not just running a procedure. She's actually playing with the numbers. Right. So, I mean, the whole idea behind Common Core is essentially... But I'm just saying if, if you... If you just start looked at the, it, if, but if, if you start from the right and do the same process, there's less rewriting. There's numbers. there's less work to do, but you're not actually getting what the numbers are representing. You're simply doing a process. You're simply do, memorizing how to do a process. Well, no, it's, it's the exact same process either way. I don't believe it is because she wasn't imagining twenty and eighty. She was imagining two and eight. Right in that first column, sure. Right, but why not just say, "Hey, if you start from the right and do the same process, there's less." Scratching out numbers. Because it's not about how much scratching out numbers you do. It's about how good you get at being able to sort of conceptualize sure. what these numbers are. The whole point is to look at it not as a procedure you do, but as a, as a bunch of more abstract elements. And the idea behind it, I'm not saying this is exactly how uh, I, I, No, I agree with the the being familiar with the number line and how the numbers interact on the number line and things like that. I, I get it. And I'm not, and I, I like how she makes tens out of columns and things like that. Uh-huh. I'm arguing that starting from the right or starting from the left, she starts from the left because she reads English. If she was read Arabic, she would start with the right column and it would be less writing to do. It's not, well, I'm, yeah, not I mean, I'm not saying start from the right column because I was taught to start from the right column. I'm saying start from the right column because there's less work. Well, to do the same remember, process. Remember, we talked about how language in, plays a role in how you interpret things. If we can translate numbers into a into something that that works a little bit more like English, then that's actually better because that means she'll understand it more. I I think that Common Core is about you know they talk about the number line, but what really Common Core is about and its fundamental level is understanding numbers as buckets. Right, a seven is a bucket that holds seven ones in it. Mm-hmm. And if you think about numbers that way, all the other, all, all the at least simple arithmetic stuff that you can think of turns out to simply be an extension of that. If you want to take 30 and divide it by 10, you're asking how many buckets of 10 does 30 fit into? Mm-hmm. If you want to multiply something seven times four, you're saying how how much ones are there in four buckets of sevens? It's all about uh, using unitary, using the the unit, 
and understanding how to manipulate the unit. That will help as you get on to other things. When you start getting into geometry, you start talking about unit circles. You're not talking about ones anymore. You're talking about a unit that is a circle. When you start talking about higher level math, you're, you're talking about units that you're using units not in terms of ones. You're using units in terms of just sort of a fundamental thing mm-hmm. that you can stretch along. Having that conception built in from the beginning is, is so important in... It was it was important to me and for me understanding math at a higher level, and it was not something I was taught. Sure, no, I don't disagree. All I'm saying is, if she's doing forty of these addition questions during a test, yeah, th- and she started from the right, she would get done quicker. I have a problem with how they test it. I mean, I think that if they go about that sort of example in, uh, see, there there was. My sister brought up some some weird number example, some weird example that was on a test, and it was a word problem, and it was pretty pretty hard to figure out. Uh, and, well, there's a lot of yeah. bad test curriculum, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, you saw the last week tonight where they were talking about that. I've seen some of Ali's um, homework curriculum that is poorly worded, ambiguous. Yeah, the ambiguous stuff they should do that in class. That's the kind of stuff that you involve your kids and you say, okay, here's this question. How do we figure out this question? You start asking for questions because that, that's how people learn is, right. is you, you ask him, you say, okay, well, that's one way. How, where does this go? All right, that, that led us to... I mean, that makes directions. sense, right? Okay, start off at an ambiguous place. Mm-hmm. Ask a question to get it to a concrete place and solve the problem. Yeah, I think in, te- in class, I think that's good. When they're sending ambiguous questions home because no one's proofread the test work... It's bad. It, it's a problem with education is that there's a real over-reliance on, on homework and testing in ter- in le- instead of actually uh, having, especially in terms of math, because most teachers, especially K-12, through are not math teachers. Most of them have been put into that position. They're teaching one or two math classes as opposed to their being, they're the math teacher at their school. Mm-hmm. So you have people who don't really know about math teaching about math. And that would be fine if it were something like something that doesn't know about Shakespeare teaching about Shakespeare. Because there is actually a weird perception in our culture that it's okay to not like math, but it's not okay to not like reading. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not okay to not like math. It's an important part of of who we are as a species. It's an important part of everything that we've done is math. It plays a huge role in every single thing that we do. Uh, it's f- a fundamental part of reality and as fundamental to our society and our civilization as languages. Yes. It has to be thought of in that way. And that's a cultural change that needs to happen. And and so hopefully, I guess the goal is that this sort of teaching will become routine and better as it goes along. But yeah, you're not going to make something perfect right away. There's going to be growing pains. Things take time to change. Especially major changes. Mm-hmm. So I say, yeah, we keep up with Common Core. 
No, I think it makes sense. I, I've never looked at Common Core uh, geometry, so I have no idea how yeah. that. Like you know, the unit circle you just showed me is about all I know about that right now. So, um, I think it helps for a better understanding of of things like bases, things like binary. If you can deal with units as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, you know dealing with numbers as as pure representations of things, right? A seven is not a seven. It's a representation, a symbol we have for a bucket of seven units. Mm-hmm. If you understand it that way, it starts to make a lot more sense why, okay, binary doesn't need sevens because you never can have a bucket of seven units in binary. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Stuff like that. Cool stuff. Neat. Yes. Here's something I thought of too. Okay. Um, how heavy what is the what is the mass of, of a photon? Okay. What is the mass of a photon? You tell me. What is the mass of a photon? Well they are massless, right? In theory. Theory. The answer is not zero, apparently. Well, the answer is, if you actually look up the mass of the proton, it's something like... Well, the proton has mass. No, okay, yes, proton. If you, if you look up the mass of a photon, if you look, if you look for the mass, it's theoretically zero, uh, and measured as less than or equal to some ridiculously small number. The thing is, you can't ever measure... Zero. Measuring is based solely on the limit of your equipment. We can only measure mass to this low level, and then we have no other way of measuring mass. We can't measure mass lower than that. So if the photon had some mass that we that was lower than that potential that we could measure, we wouldn't right. we we wouldn't know. Well you build better equipment. You build better equipment, and so that number keeps getting smaller mm-hmm. because we really do think photons have zero mass, right. but you can never measure zero. So if you're asking me what the mass of a photon was and you want me to experimentally verify it, I could say it's less than a gram. Exactly. You could say it's, it's way less than a gram. You say it, 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 this is the limit of my thing can get to, to masses this, this tiny, this tiny, and the photon has no effect on it. So... It's less than this, but you can never say, well, I've experimentally proved that the photon is zero because we mm. simply, you can't measure zero. That's the whole point. It's not there. There's nothing to measure. Yeah. Okay. And there's always a, there's always another decimal place, right? If you can measure mm-hmm. z- thousand zeros in a one point zero 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 thousand zeros in a one, we'll just add another zero or two in there. Maybe that's how much it weighs. Is is there a continuum? I mean, does it, it does it strike a point where mass itself is quantized? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. <clears throat> There's got to be a fundamental unit of mass, right? Well, there has to be a fundamental way. <sighs> hmm. Yes, in order for it to exist, there has to be some sort of fundamental aspect of it, uh, or at least uh, let me let me restate that. Uh, 
in order for it to exist, it has to uh, at least uh, be dependent on some other factors. I mean, so the Higgs particle gives it mass, or give is Higgs, what is that the not the force? always? No, the Higgs is is something that gives some particles mass. some particles mass uh but energy itself has mass the higgs provides energy oh, to these okay. particles uh but but energy itself we see that in like most of the mass uh of you or you know any anything that we know of doesn't come from the higgs from massive particles or the higgs field it comes from uh the interactions on the for the, the gluons inside of the nucleus that's just energy being converted to mass that's nearly all of your mass 99 percent oh, okay mass. So, yeah, you, the mass of, of the the stuff that gives uh, elementary particles weakly interacting and, and um, electrically interacting particles, the particles themselves, what we call the particles mass, that is tiny in comparison to the mass that we get. Okay. From. But, but it, what that does more is it stops them in space-time. It allows them to participate in space-time interactions. Okay. Still, you'd think that there's there's a component of your mass that's it. right, right. But I'm, I'm thinking about the smallest unit of mass, right? There's got to be the with enough knowledge. There's got to be the weakest, lowest energy interaction that causes mass. And if it's quantized, okay. Because um, if it, if it's continuous, then I mean, then you do have an asymptotically approaching zero, and so it just sort of mm. sort of appears out of nowhere. Oh, I see. Um, which would which would imply, because everything that we've seen that works on this model, everything that has a continuous thing, imp- the implication is that it arises out of some the the products of something like. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, an example of, of of this when you get down to to a to a quantum theory is position and momentum. They can't be separated from one another. Uh, when you get down to that level, they can be as you get across, but essentially, then they they asymptotically diverge. You, this is what happens when whenever you have anything that sort of builds continuously, it's built on some quantum behavior, and it just is built up out of that. At least that's the understanding that mm-hmm. we have from, from quantum right. field theory. Let's see. U.S. scientists have managed to measure the mass of a cluster of xenon atoms, just a few billionths of a trillionth of a gram, or a few zeptograms. Record is a measure is a mass range. The measurement is in the mass range of an individual protein molecule. The detection was made using sensitive scales developed at Caltech. You're still measuring molecules as opposed to yeah. measuring yeah. subatomic particles, which we really measure by, uh, in terms of their energy. Although there are other, I mean, there are other ways we obviously got to the the measurement of their mass, but that's through calculations. There's no scale you can put an electron on. You have to devise a way to to figure out because. Yeah, okay. So there's no scale. But what is a scale? Scale is uh, something that... I don't want to describe that. Um, Okay, so what is a scale doing? 
I mean, a scale is measuring the pull of gravity on its sensor. Yeah, it's it's just one way to look at it. Yeah, that's it, a perfectly acceptable way of looking at it. Uh, some people would say uh, the scale is measuring the force at which it is pushing you against gravity, but either one, they're interoperable. Oh, sure, sure. So a scale is measuring the force of gravity. A scale is a force gauge, mm-hmm. right? So that means that what a scale is doing is measuring some force being put on it. So when I'm saying there's no scale for ele- for particles, that's not necessarily true. If a scale is just a force gauge, we have ways of measuring the forces that particles can push. Right. So there's no scale you can just drop an electron on in terms of scales as we think about it. But we can make force gauges, and that's all scales are. Right. When you have things that don't... Okay, yeah, yeah, I guess. How do you... How would you... So mass is measured in grams, kilograms, right? Yes. And... So mass is not weight. Weight is measured in newtons. Weight is force. Right. But mass is measured in kilograms. So we have a artifact that's a kilogram and we balance that in a gravity field against something we're weighing and that's how we define whether it's more or less than a kilogram right yes yes the idea being that we understand the gravity field that it's in and uh right so then how and really how do you equate so here's a good question you might have an answer to so when you start measuring the mass of things that don't interact with gravity so much or are so small that it's not balanced, you know, you can't really measure it because it doesn't sit on a scale. Mm-hmm. How do they can, how do they get, how do they go from measuring real things, macro things in a gravity field to things that don't play well in gravity? And the answer is, that's where it gets complicated. <laughs> uh, you have to start to understand, because like I said, scales are force gauges. You have to start to understand then, all right, what, once you get a good idea of what the force of gravity is, mm-hmm. once you get a good idea of an equation to say, this is how the force of gravity will interact with this, then you can start to, if you understand equations about how other things interact, you can start to translate the math over. You can say, all right, this interaction is a lot like this interaction or the same as this interaction, but it's just done in a different way. And that's how you do it. You map the equation mm-hmm. for understanding the force gauge and gravity to the equation for understanding the force on a molecular level. Right. So there's got, there must be a... Uh, yeah, there's got to be an equation from grams to newtons or something like that right sure and then that's what you, you work from the newton to measure this force and then you just work it back into grams because mm-hmm. that's your mass measurement so like here on earth today a kilogram is something newtons yeah well, let's, let's take a look how many newtons in one kilogram today <laughs> Kilogram force converts to about 9.81 newtons. So you have to turn into kilogram force, which means kilogram over time. 
Well, sure. It just sits there. Yeah, Doesn't but you have to you have to well, sure. take right, right. a kilogram yeah. over time. You can't just say kilogram or time. You have to use both in order to come up with. So right. you have to do. So that's a conversion you have to do. Oh, well, sure. I mean, but the artifact's not changing. Yeah. At least we don't want it to. So it's pretty static. But yeah, you gotta throw in that to make force. But now that you have a Newton, Newton doesn't have to exist on Earth in the same gravity field. So now you can do other things. Mm-hmm. Mm, Newtons. Fig Newtons. <laughs> think maybe a fig dropped on Newton's head. Maybe that's the whole deal. No, I think it's a marketing thing. <laughs> I'm thinking. It's so a, where are the Apple Newtons? I mean, there are on. Apple Newtons. Yeah, they don't sell well. They're good. Pretty good. What happens if you if they throw them on somebody's head? <laughs> do they all of a sudden learn how to do gravity? I understand gravity now. I know the apple didn't fall on his head. I know he was just using a metaphor of an apple falling down. You think? That's just it's true. That's just from the Apple industry. They don't want to be villainized. Right. I I don't actually know that an Apple never fell on his head. I do not have actual knowledge of that, and I am willing to be convinced if someone re- would present me with enough. Evidence. Oh, I heard a really interesting thing. I think it was on sixty second Science. Um, you know, uh, citrus greening that problem that fungus mold they have uh, in orange groves. Yeah, I think I've read something about that. Yeah. It's a pretty big problem because it first causes the fruit not to be productive, but then it kills the tree eventually. Well, they've f- working on a way to disrupt it non-pesticide uh, way. And there is one um, gnat or bug or something that is the main uh, carrier of the bacteria that infects the trees. And they're able to disrupt the bug's mating because the male bug like beats its wings and vibrations are sent down the stems of the trees or the branches to the females and the females reply back. They have um, a sensor and a little microcontroller on the tree who detects the male's buzz and sends back a female fake buzz before the female's buzz can come back and it's pulling the males away. <laughs> and they've been, they were trying to catch them in flypaper. But the males are pretty good. They're pretty good at avoiding flypaper, so it isn't been great yet. But they're still hypothesizing that fucking with the mating ritual might actually still help. So it just introduces a new pressure on the gnats. The question is: though the women who can are faster, or or well, or or the gnats who evolve a way to to another way to actually to reproduce get without. Yeah. using the beats i mean you're just but if you can it, 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 it's it will have the same effect as pesticides or antibiotics or anything else because the whole point is that life evolves around these, these well it doesn't have the plants. same effect as you putting poison on your fruit that's true that is true um in, in terms of stopping the no. gnat problem but the, gnat, will, the it, gnat's not the problem yeah. the bacteria is the problem so what if you disrupt the gnat population enough to cull the spread of the bacteria and then by the time they um, you know, evolve around. Then maybe they're not carrying the bacteria in the same way. It's possible. It's possible. There, there is something to say about that. Uh, as long as the microcontroller stuff doesn't harm the tree in any way. Uh, and are we sure about that? Because I don't really know how trees work. <laughs> it, 
So it's just it has a vibra- it has a cell phone vibrator motor on it, uh-huh. and it's just vibrating the branch like because uh-huh. instead of is is that okay for the trees? gnats do it too? The gnats are doing gnats have been doing it for eons, but the, the but they're mic- not the, doing it on on. It's just mimicking the the females' vibrations. Okay, all right. Okay. It's just doing it more effectively and faster than the females and fooling the ma- today able to fool the males. Okay. When the males start getting blue balls too much, they might be able to discern the difference. But could you dampen the signals in some way, or or, or, or ooh, you know. well, that's what when they were reading the story, I thought that I thought they were going to use noise canceling or something. Yeah. I thought they were going to do an inverse wave. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. What and uh, I was expecting the story to go that way, and then they said no, they're just kind of decoying them. But you could probably take the idea and try to inverse wave the mating calls and kind of just make it quiet. I wonder if then the question is, would that hurt the tree? Because like you said, we know the net stuff is fine. The tree works on it. We don't uh, know that... These are such small vibrations. We don't know. You don't know. We don't, we don't know. know. We don't know. I think the likelihood is work. very low. But it could be that for some reason that little gnat thing, you know, the slight little beat is some sort of exercise for the tree that we don't understand. It was not exercise in the way we, we understand it, but it, it does something to stimulate something that the tree does that, that makes it work. Okay. I would say very unlikely. But I don't know the I don't know the likelihood of this type of stuff. The tree's out in the world with wind and trucks driving by and all kinds of yeah, shit. Yeah, and the stuff that's near trucks driving by, I mean, has had to, to yeah. cope with that. The ones that were first put near trucks driving by didn't do so well. Do you know that? I don't know that for sure. All right. That's a that 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 is an educated guess, but it is it is a guess. But I do know that trees respond to their environment; that they are not static things. Trees, plants. Maybe are the trees complex. don't want these gnats feeding on their fruits anyway. Or maybe they've grown. I mean, you you would say I don't want. Um, like if you ask somebody, you told them there's there's uh, there's you know thousands of bugs on the surface of your skin crawling around. They would say, "Oh, I don't want that." Well, it turns out you do. You just you're not understanding that they play a role in keeping you clean. Uh, you know, you would say, "I don't want a trillion types of microbes in my digestive system." Well, you do because you wouldn't be able to feed. You could say the trees would say, "I don't want gnats." Maybe, maybe they do because it lets them do X, R, Z. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know the biology of trees that much. I do know the plants. The ash trees are really happy that emerald ash borers came around. They really, <laughs> really helped them out. Well. How long have it, have these gnats been in a relationship with this tree? Yeah, I, I have no idea about that one. It's, they're not they're not classified as a pest, mm-hmm. but they are spreading a disease. But that's they're killing spreading the tree. A disease. So what you're worried about more is the disease, not the gnat. So what I'm saying is you don't want to disrupt the gnat so much because you don't know what impact that will have. Well, the researchers might. It was a 60 second uh, podcast I was listening to, <laughs> so they really didn't get okay, into that no, detail. Uh, sure, uh, absolutely. We don't know. Uh, we are exploring the space of possibilities that we don't. We don't However, know sixty second science really does stretch that limit. <laughs> it can be ninety seconds. It could be a hundred and twenty five right. seconds. That was a problem with the, with the the channel Minute Physics, where the guy started. You know, he wanted to do one minute physics things, and of course now it's two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes. Yeah. yeah. 
as well. It's it's, it's minutes of physics instead of hours. Yeah. But no, I mean, it, okay, true. We don't know. We don't know really much about it except for a little bit of information. And I, my peppering you with questions is not what do you know about it. It's it's more like what could be the consequence of these things. Oh, sure, sure. I'm, I'm sort of exploring the 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 possibilities. Right. Right. I think it's a novel idea, disrupting the uh, fly population to curtail the spread of the bacteria. And again, these aren't trees out in the wild. These are right, yeah, these are tests. These are well, even even otherwise, these are orange trees on factory farms. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think anyone's going to give two shits about some minute little change in the tree's uh, physiology. When or if it makes your orange taste worse. If it does, they'll stop doing it. They'll figure something <laughs> out. They'll put the poison back on yeah. the oranges. You guys want your poison, your oranges. Trust me. You should hear you should feel what they taste like with these gnat stuff. Without the gnats. Without the gnats. Without the gnats, it tastes like garbage. They're like durian mixed with other sewage flavors. Mm. <laughs> All right. On to the show, do you think? I think that's about enough of that nonsense. It was a fun one, though. Did it record? That's the big question. It, it, it looks like it's fine. Okay. 